Thriving, Not Surviving, with your host, Gina Gardner. To lead others, you first need to be the best version of yourself and lead from a place of wholeness. Motivation, empowerment, leadership, personal and spiritual development are just a few of the topics you will hear on Thriving, Not Surviving. So sit back and enjoy the show with your host, Gina Gardner. It's Gina Gardner here and welcome to Thriving Not Surviving. Really pleased to welcome you and I've got a great guest today, Dr. Mandeep Rai. I'm going to introduce her in a moment, but I'm Gina Gardner. I'm a number one international best-selling author. I'm a motivational speaker and an empowerment coach and transformational leader. And for those of you that aren't familiar, these shows have two parts. A great guest to start with, and then after the break, there's going to be a, a genuine chat with myself and Rachel. So without more ado, I'm going to introduce Mandeep. She has a very, very impressive bio, and I don't want to miss any of the essence of it, so I'm going to read it. Author of The Values Compass, what 101 countries teach us about purpose, life and leadership, Mandeep Rai is a global authority on values, working with companies, institutions and individuals around the world. She's travelled to more than 150 countries and reported for the BBC, World Service and Reuters, among others. She began her career in private banking at JP Morgan and later worked for the United Nations, the European Commission and grassroots NGOs before setting up the UAE's first media venture capital fund. Mandeep studied philosophy, politics and economics and has an MSc in development from the London School of Economics and completed an MBA at London Business School, with a year at Harvard Business School and MIT. She also holds a PhD in Global Values. Mandeep, welcome. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about values and you've written this amazing book, um, The Values Compass. But I'd really like to start by asking you to share the journey. How, does, how do you get from being um, a child to writing a book about values and doing the work that you've done? It seems to me quite an incredible journey. Well, um, okay, if you'd ask me to start from my childhood, I would start from Birmingham. So my grandfather moved from India to Birmingham. It was he, we're Sikh, and 80% of the Indian military at that time was Sikh. Um, and Sikhs came, were helped to fight in the First World World War, the Second World War, and also many people came at straight after the world wars in order to rebuild the country and that's the that's england um and when when my grandfather came there were many people as well as kind of in the military they also then went on to kind of work in foundries and factories and a lot of that work was in birmingham and at the age of seven um my parents decided to move to gloucestershire so we went from a very multicultural um environment 
surrounded by family to a very, I would say, isolated environment um, and completely kind of middle class and white, frankly. Um, and there was a lot of, I immediately knew then that I was different, as in, yes, I'm British, but to some people, um, I remember for distinctly, for example, on my way to primary school, being tripped up by a boy from my class. And when we got to school, uh, there was blood everywhere. And in fact, my nose had broken. And this fall was quite harsh. Uh, and the teacher said to him, what happened? Why did you trip her up? And he said, well, I just wanted to see whether her blood was brown or red. And it was a genuine question. He had not seen um, someone of colour before. So, you know, you're made aware of your of the fact that you're different again and again and again. And yet I didn't know what it was. I didn't really um, have an idea of what what is it like, am I... So if I'm from India, well, what's India like? And I actually didn't go to India until the age of 14. And when I was there, I realized that I'm not Indian either. People would remind me very often. Um, I didn't even have to open my mouth or uh, they could tell just by the way I moved my head uh, that, I, that I had been brought up and was from somewhere else. So you realize that, and it's not just me, I know many people feel like this and have had this experience where we're global citizens but our values and our country and our culture and our people are kind of shaping us and informing us. But what's really important to us might get a little bit lost in between all of that. And so I found that although although I was kind of discovering and learning who I was, it really didn't become very real to me until I became 18. And at the age of 18, there was a moment when I got to a place at the University of Oxford mm -hmm. and my mother thought, oh no, now she's really going to, uh, you know, we're really going to lose her to this society. She's going to marry someone called Sebastian. We're not going to be able to have a, a, a conversation in Punjabi to our grandchildren. Um, she's going to be part of that, you know, society, that British, British Raj. She's going to be part of the, the Raj that uh, came to India in the first place or the, the British Raj. So all these, all these kind of fears came up in her and she said, please um, accept any of those, uh, accept any of those acceptances at UCAS for another university. Just, just, you know, save us and don't go to that one. And as soon as she's asked me that, well, firstly, she's my mother and she's actually like my best friend. I'm not going to not do what she says. Um, and so I, when I turned down the place, I began to realise quite quickly that actually my values and what's important to me were different to hers. Although we both wanted what was best for me, what I really wanted was I had just a curiosity and a thirst for knowledge and I wanted to learn as much as I could and really understand the world. And at that point I realised that I had to almost defend or fight for my values, really know what's important to me in order to live a kind of successful, fulfilling, happy life. And that was the turning point for me. That was the moment when I learned. I think for many people, that moment comes much later on in life. That, you know, something happens where they suddenly recognise that what's really important. Um, so you chose to go to which university instead? So um, I went to the University of Manchester and uh, within my first year, I got a full paid scholarship to go and study in Australia in the University of Melbourne. 
um, I was studying PPE, politics, economics, philosophy, and all the kind of financial, or, or, like the Asian crisis was happening at the time. So Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, were, they were all going through this kind of crisis. And if you're going to really study PPE, you might as well be at the kind of nerve center or the place that's kind of closest to that and where and the experts were sitting at the University of Melbourne. So there couldn't have been a better place actually to study in the end and study it, study it in real life. And then I traveled all the countries back on my way back home. Um, but of course you, you don't know this. <laughs> it all works out. You don't know this. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? How a decision that's made has a knock on effect um, and how often people worry about, am I going to make the right decision? And they get so tied up and exercised about, it's got to be the right decision. If I don't make it, then you know the world's going to come to an end. When the reality is that each decision that we make has different consequences, but it doesn't make them right or wrong. It just makes them different. And I suspect that your life would have taken a different route, but I also suspect that you would probably have ended up doing something similar to how you are and what you've done now yeah i think you're right i, I don't know i it's interesting when you say people think that the world's going to end i think it's a sense of like what if i don't reach my potential what if i don't make the you know really maximize the opportunity here i think that's kind of the angst that people are in or they're scared of, yes like you said getting it wrong and so but if you think that actually it doesn't matter like to your point and i completely agree that whichever path you take and whichever route you take i think you're going to end up in the same place because actually at every point life is knocking you towards what's important for you or right for you um and often will nudge you in that direction or uh kick you into that direction or slap you into that direction or if you don't listen at all throw a boulder and really <laughs> change your course <laughs> until you get there and I, I would absolutely agree, but I think particularly around people finding their true purpose. I think, you know, that's the one for me that, that life has a way of, of, of shaping you to get to that place. Um, so you, if you're open and looking for the signs. Oh, of course, yes. And many people, you know, it needs to get to the boulder stage before they even have any inkling that anything's going on, don't they? Yes. So you've left university what now i mean you have a degree you've got an opportunity to do so many things yes um i was lucky in that um at my university there was a milk round and uh there was a kind of a women in the city program being run out um or rolled out and the lady who hired me or sort of met me um called joe ryan who actually is still a fairy godmother and still very much part of my life um, 20 years ago, believed in me, liked what she saw and said, let's see whether you'd like or be a good fit for JP Morgan. I think you would be. And she was really pivotal and important throughout the whole time that I was there because she could see what, what was making me tick and what was motivating me and what was driving me. And that I needed really a sense of kind of, I needed to feel like I was making a very positive contribution. So I remember covering Bluetooth when it first came out and thought, ah, we should put this into our portfolio. I think it's going to be a big thing. Or what about impact investing? What if our, um, you know, what if our private clients had a chance to make a really, a real difference whilst they were investing their money? And maybe this was, this was 20 years ago. Maybe I was a little bit ahead of my time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
I remember when uh, you know she'd remind me, and everyone gently remind me, look, this is an investment bank, and we're making rich people richer. Like you know, yes, you think there's kind of positive ways in which we can do that, or socially impactful ways in which we could do that, but the core value matters, and I totally understand what they're saying. Um, and so she gave me a chance to take a three-month sabbatical just to kind of see the world a little bit before really establishing myself. And in those three months, I um, this is when JP Morgan were merging with Chase Manhattan. So there was a bit of kind of a window. And, and I went to Central America to meet some university friends. And there I was perfecting my Spanish and the aim was just to be Cuban in Cuba. That was always, it's a society I've really been fascinated with for a long time. I wanted to know how this kind of socialist, Castro-led, um, country, how it really was. Um, and I can look Cuban, I can sound Cuban thanks to the Spanish, uh, but the Puma trainers and the big hammock that I was carrying were really giving me away as being not Cuban. So I just had to get rid of those. Um, and that led to like this uh, serendipitous moment where these items that I was carrying, I just thought uh, my aim was just to have them somehow reach LA in order to then um so that I could pick them up and, and bring them back home my LA was my last stop and so I asked someone to kindly take this bag to um just to kind of check it in and then to leave it on the conveyor belt and that I would pick it up from this property and it turns out that that uh, lady who I asked then um didn't leave it on the conveyor belt she took it home and she sent me this email saying sniffer dogs all over your bag and this is my one piece of communication to you. And, um, you know, I'm writing this from, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> freaked me out. And they said, actually, if you want your stuff, you just have to come to my home and then you can pick it up. And there she told me what she was doing, what she was um, standing for. And she had just lost her son um, to, uh, in Somalia. He was a photojournalist and he had been stoned to death. Um, oh. Yeah, at a time when um, the U.S. embassy, they uh, there had been a bombing, um, and the U.S. embassy had been um, bombed, and the Somalians were just angry that there were these white um, journalists and photojournalists taking these pictures, and stones were thrown. He was his one hit his head. He lost his life, and she thought. I'm going to empower other young people who have the same chutzpah, who have the same zest to do something that's socially impactful. Um, and, and then she continued, she kind of amplified her work in media and amplified creative activism and social activism. And it's an organization actually that I still work with called Creative Visions. Um, and she right then and there said, what are you doing now? Please come and work with me. I think, I think we, uh, you know, you've traveled all the countries that we're covering in our PBS documentary series called Global Tribe. Why don't you come and join us? Um, and that led to many things, including um, me learning then how to make documentaries. And it led to the, uh, being trained by the BBC World Service. And then I basically traveled around the world reporting, um, hence the 150 countries, and also did work with, uh, like you said, with uh, kind of in development um, with large institutions like the UN and the EU, but also lots of grassroots organisations. And wherever I was, I would report back and often report for the World Service. And so, for example, if there was a ban on plastic bags in Ladakh, which there was, and I'd cover it, I'd get letters back from 
villages in Rwanda saying, we heard your story, I think this is really, maybe we could do something here, maybe we'd love to ban plastic, how do we do that, what could we do? And so I could immediately see an impact of these stories and this kind of the communication through media. What an amazing lady uh, to be able to, to see beyond the tragedy of her son's death, to do something truly positive with that. And what fantastic opportunity for you to, to spread your wings and to see so many different situations and to have that opportunity. Um, and it sounds to me as if you grabbed it by both hands and, um, and, and made the very most of it. So yes, I had, I had this feeling that you do have to make the most of life. Um, I always had this feeling you have to make the most of life before you get married and just do everything you possibly can and, you know, really live life, but also learn and see and really know how the world works. And she fully supported that. And I would say they've been really blessed. I mean, there, there are two people that I've just mentioned right now, but there have been so many. There have been, uh, you know, deans at the business school. There have been um, just a million kind of empowering people along this journey. This journey has been 100% a support of a million souls and a million helping hands. And hence the fact that all these stories are then um, weaved into the book to kind of give back and inspire to it and pay it forward. So, so what was the motivation for writing the book? Um, well, I, uh, as, I would, as I would just kind of travel to these different places, I would always not only report um, for the World Service, but also right back home to my friends and family and I'd often get the feedback it would these emails would get spread I'd, I'd send it to someone who'd then send it to an aunt who'd then send it to you know a relative or a, a, a neighbor etc etc and it'd always be told one day you should collect this and write this into a book and I thought yes yes one day um but it wasn't really until uh I really thought it would happen at my retirement but when I fell pregnant a very good friend of mine another helping hand uh, his name's Andy Taylor who was also at the BBC at the time said um why, why don't you just collect these stories now and what about let's write something like think about letters to my unborn child and he's a, he's very creative and i thought he's got a point that i sh could give all this wisdom from around the world to the next generation and why should it just stop with my children it should be uh kind of spread to all children in fact why just children why not beyond that so um as that as as I got thinking about that, I did plan to do it as letters to my unborn child and write it within the nine months, but it took a bit longer than nine months. So I got pregnant again and tried it again and it still took longer. And then I got then enrolled into the PhD and there was a lot of, it was a very iterative journey where I began to realise that actually what I'm writing about are values per place. Um, it wasn't really the values per country. It's the fact that what I'm writing about are values and we can see them, a colourful way of describing them to you is to show how each and every country displays these values so each country has been distilled into a value really as a colorful way of taking you around the world but also showing you know having you think about oh how could solidarity enrich my life and how is it practiced in madagascar but how is it how could it enrich my life or um cleanliness from Rwanda, what could that mean to me or silence from finland or patience or faith or hope how can these all how can these values enrich me and out of all these values what's really most important to me that's not to say you need to limit yourself or you can't embody all of these but it's often to do it's often difficult to do everything at the same time um it's easier to pick a few things focus on them and then to move on and embody others so the the idea of the book it's really a um 
a tool, it's called the Values Compass. It's a compass that you then put in your back pocket. It helps you, not only does it take you around the world to show you the good, the great interviews from like prime ministers, presidents to shoe cleaners, uh, but it also t- helps you have, take that kind of inner journey into yourself and think what's most important to me so that you walk away with your kind of top five values in your back pocket prioritized for a distinct period of time which once you've met that objective or goal or um, uh, that initiative, you can then revise and move forward and shake it up again and set your next kind of set of priorities through your values. We're always making decisions through our values as a book about that. It's such a powerful tool, isn't it, to live your life, to recognise what your values are and what behaviours and language you need to um, be experiencing from others and be uh, employing yourself that value to feel as if it's been met yeah we're constantly making um decisions according to our values but you never really know what they are we don't articulate we don't talk about values ever we don't ever think about life in that way but actually if you're finding it difficult to make a decision or if you're finding um uh often your values are then you haven't prioritized you just you know you have two values that are equally important to you and they're often at a battle with each other our values are a combination of nature and nurture and you don't know necessarily what's important to you until you really until perhaps your values are violated or until you really think about it so i'll give you an example if for example you're carrying uh, a bag let's say and that bag feels um, is increasingly feeling heavy and burdensome and your journey feels really long. And um, you meet someone on that journey who asks you to carry yet another bag. So you carry that other person's bag because they're, they're also finding it difficult. Um, but in that journey, you also start talking to that person. You realize that you're really enjoying their company. You're doing something of service. You're getting involved in whatever that's important to them. Um, you're, you're meeting their need and before you realise it, your own bag isn't an issue and their bag isn't an issue. And you realise, well, actually, being of service really helps me. Um, and so there are many occasions in life where you realise, actually, my what I'm drawn to, or what motivates me, if I focus on those things, I can come to a place of joy, fulfilment, happiness. I think that's why the Dalai Lama endorsed the book. <laughs> Which is absolutely brilliant. But I think, you know, you're so right that, you know, I work with individual couples, organisations, teams, and so often either they haven't considered what their values are as individuals or as a collective, or they've paid lip service to it and they've got a list that looks very pretty on the wall, but it doesn't, it's not actually embodied in how people treat one another. And, you know, I think that 2020, we, we're recording this in, in the early summer of 2020. You look around the world and you can see how when values are at odds with one another in terms of different groups of people, that, that real trouble and tragedy um, is the result, isn't it? Yeah, I think in some ways we... Sometimes we can be lying to ourselves about what's important to us, about what our values are. Firstly, we rarely take time to think about it. But right now, people actually are thinking about it. Um, I don't know if this is because the book has come out and people are giving me this feedback, or I think it's a combination of 
um, this taking you around the world at a time you can't travel and then helping you reflect on what's important at a time when you have that time. And indeed, when everything is kind of shaken up and we're pressing the reset button and we're thinking, what world am I going to create for myself in the future? Cities aren't necessarily going to be the same. Um, our lifestyle is not necessarily going to be the same. In fact, nothing needs to be the same. Yeah. How do I want to shape my future, my time, so that it reflects what's important to me? The only real commodity we have that um, is limited and the same for all of us are the 24 hours in the day. How am I going to shape that so that it's leaving and creating the legacy that I truly wanted to create rather than me just responding and reacting to things um, in an automatic fashion, which doesn't leave me fulfilled and nor others. And you're right, also, it's a, a key moment when all of us not only reflect on our own values, but also understand what's the journey the other person has just walked on, what's important to them, why are they reacting in this way? And so to your point about couples and uh, families and organisations, I think once you realise what an organisation stands for or what's important to your other half or what a family is inspired by, it's easier to have a sense of harmony and understand one another and gel with one another. Yeah, I think then the, the need to be right or seem to be right, which I think is highly overrated, becomes far less of a tension when people have a, a shared understanding of what the values are and how they can demonstrate those values one to another. Indeed, because what's right? I mean, is it because it's right for you or right for the other or right in these circumstances? Whose circumstances? That's yeah. uh, The word right is overrated. You're totally right. It's not right. <laughs> just before we finished, yeah, I just want to ask you, what's the dream? What now? Because I'm, you know, you're young and vibrant. Um, what is there left? What, what are the things that you are keen to do? moving forward i think i'm still um inspired by that mission of uh making a positive difference so there are many ways in which this conversation of values can be of service it's um of service to individuals organizations even nations so it's really to bring up that work of values so that it truly embodies and empowers each and every one of us uh, to be our very best selves and evolve, evolve humanity into their, their most kind of, right now I see it as being, um, we're evolving into hopefully a more collaborative, creative, compassionate community. Yeah, and those, I couldn't agree with you more and that's certainly my hope and, and my life's work which is around enlightened leadership and personal empowerment and it's all about integrity and compassion and the courage to stand up and do what's right, what's, uh, what's in the interests of, of everyone, rather than taking the easy route or the selfish route. Um, so I, I wish you well, and I hope to have you back on the show at some point. Uh, thank you so much. Before we go, where can people find you? And I know that you've got an offer for the people who are listening. Yes, I love the fact that you stand for generosity and service too. So I love the fact that we, we have this opportunity to give an offer. Um, so people can find me and the offer at www.mandeep, that's M-A-N-D-E-E-P, um, or E-E-P hyphen R-A-I-R-I dot com. 
and there there's an, there's an opportunity so it's mandeep-y.com there's an opportunity to put your um details in your email address and uh, then you can get a be part of the community get a free um chapter of the book um be part of the book club there's many hopefully many many offerings apart from the ones that i've just mentioned now so please don't hesitate in getting in touch and i'm also on every social media platform also and all of those details will be in the show notes so if you didn't catch it um you can find out where to find Vandeep and her book, which is also on Amazon um, and where all good books are sold. Uh, and I really recommend that you go out um, and you get it and you read it. So thank you once again. It's been an absolute delight. Um, and that brings us to the end of the first part of the show. But please don't go away. Um, after a very short break, we'll be carrying on um, and we'll have a genuine conversation with Rachel. So Mandeep just leaves me to say thank you. Thank you. It's been brilliant it's been a real pleasure to be here and i hope that we can propel your work to continue to inspire um uplift and motivate others that's fabulous thank you so see you in a moment if you're a businesswoman who is overwhelmed or suffering from imposter syndrome, who is tired of having one disastrous relationship after another, or who finds it hard just to say no. Well, it's time to take care of you. You get the best out of life by contacting Gina Gardner, relationship coach and best-selling author and motivational speaker. Just visit genuinely-u.com or you can email Gina directly at Gina at genuinely-u.com Take action now. Start to thrive rather than simply survive. Imagine being a highly successful, enlightened leader who is in complete alignment with your best self, who makes a positive difference on a daily basis. Let me introduce Gina Gardner, an expert in developing transformational leadership with over 30 years of experience. Gina has developed a unique and unrivaled approach to help you step into your genuine power to become an enlightened leader. And when you do, amazing things happen. Go to enlightenedleadership.co or email Gina at gina at genuinely-u.com. Hello there and welcome back. This is the part of the show where I'm joined by my great friend Rachel Davidson. Um, she's our regular guest and we're going to share with you our thoughts about a particular theme. The theme today is worrying and you know over the last few months there have been such a lot of things in the news 
for us all to worry about hmm. the virus, the state of the world, the state of the economy, the environment. But what good does worrying do? And why do we worry? So, what is worry all about? Oh. Well, we have had a lot here in the UK, haven't we, with all of the stress over the Brexit vote. Yes. Which, I mean, I think it's been three, four years of, of national worrying. Yes. And then, of course, as, as we record this, the coronavirus is, you know, making headlines. Worry is, is some kind of protection, isn't it? It's, it's some attempt to keep yourself safe. Um, it, it keeps, I suppose, you know, it, it can make you feel better in the sense that it makes you feel like you're raising your awareness so that when the attack comes, you'll be ready for it. And some people have turned this worry around the coronavirus into, I must go to the shop and clear the shelves of all food in the stockpile. And toilet rolls. <laughs> toilet rolls in particular, which is yeah. somewhat strange. bizarre. But um, it's indicative, isn't it, of our animalistic programming of for survival. Because, you know, when you're an antelope out on the plains and, and you've got tigers and leopards and, and cheetahs, oh my, looking for you, it, it kind of makes sense to have an element of worry going on all the time, to, to be watching for threats. But doesn't really translate very well into our very sheltered modern day lives does it because no. in actual fact worrying about a virus doesn't stop you from coming into contact with it necessarily and it doesn't stop you from catching it in fact actually you could argue that the stress you're giving yourself by being constantly on high alert makes you more prone to the attack <laughs> that's my theory <laughs> there's a great deal there and i think yeah, i'd like to unpick it mm. we are although we like to think we are hugely evolved, we are still at the core, we are animals. We do have the limbic brains. We do. Yes. And our ego, our conscious mind, the, the whole purpose of that is to keep us safe. Yeah. The challenge is in modern day society, as you so rightly said, when there is so much news being thrust at us firstly we don't know what's real and what's not but the issue is that worry in and of itself does nothing to keep us safe in fact for many people if you think of the number of people who are suffering from anxiety and depression quite the opposite mm. our brains cannot tell fact from fiction yeah. it's one of the reasons why homeric memories you know people who remember that in the summer it was always sunny mm. yes. or they have a, a memory of something which somebody else who's been there at the time would say, well, that's not so. It was completely different. Yeah. And so it's very difficult for us to separate what's real threat. You know, are we going to be chased by a tiger? Are we imminently in danger of our very survival being threatened? Or is this generated anxiety and worry which actually goes nowhere. Mm. So for me, there's two very distinct um, approaches to worry. One is, am I in real danger, whether that's physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Mm. Is there a real threat? And how do I know? Mm. But if that's the case, then what do I need to do? What action do I need to take to either eliminate the, the threat or minimise it. Mm. 
And we can do that in a whole variety of ways. Mm. But it's where the threat is real. And one of the things that's really helpful is to actually grade that threat. A 10 out of 10 threat is, I am about to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> I'm about to be run down by a bus. I am sitting next to somebody who's got Ebola. Um, I need to get out of here. One out of 10 is, everything's fine. Yeah. And I think if we can grade that worry, um, put it into some level of perspective, yeah. then we can start to take appropriate action. The second sort of worry is that gramophone record, for those of you who are old enough to remember gramophones, that go round and round and round. And very often it's uh, much more active at night or in quiet times where we are worrying about something in the past and actually we have no power to do anything about changing it oh. or we're anxious about what's going to happen in the future. Oh. But in that moment, there is no actual danger to us. No, and just like the Baz Luhrmann sunscreen song yeah. says, the things that are you know you are most likely to fear are the ones that hit you you know, out of the left side on the Tuesday afternoon. I mean, last Wednesday was a classic case in point for me. I'm pretty sure I was worrying about something in my life. I can't remember it because I got a phone call to say, your dad's been taken to hospital with chest pains. Yeah. These things I was not worrying about. <laughs> so the actual act of worry, I mean, it shows that, you know, that I cannot remember what I was processing as yeah. my latest worry on, on the day because some real stuff happened, real stuff yeah. that was worth worrying about. Yeah once it had happened but there was I wasn't sat there thinking what if my dad what if this what if that mm -hmm. so it's just an illustration really of half the things that you're worrying about I'd say greater number. probably 99% of yeah. the things you're worrying about are never likely or really going to happen you might start to create them happening by focusing on them if you yeah. believe in certainly if you believe in the laws of manifestation and the fact that the universe will give you what you're thinking of yes and your thoughts and turn into your beliefs, turn into your actions, then you will construct your circumstances. So if you're worrying about something dreadful, you might, in theory, create it. But the reality is that it's just a waste of energy. It, it's totally empty calorie use. It's even more than that for me. I think, yes, it's wasted energy and, you can, and time. You can mm. never have that time or energy back. Mm. They're both finite resources. But actually, it leaches your energy. Mm. It's what I call really expensive energy <clears throat> because it has no real positive purpose. In fact, quite the opposite. Because if there is a worry that's going around in your head, um, partly, I think, it's identifying, is this worry real or not? Mm. Is there anything I can actually do to... Um, to make that threat less mm. if there isn't then how can i manage that threat more effectively if it's something in the past then the only thing that is worth doing is learning from the experience yeah and moving on forgive yourself or others if that needs to happen mm. but worrying about what you've done or not done or how you've done it isn't going to change it. No. I can remember when I was made redundant, it was very short notice, and it was a bit of a financial disaster. Um, you know, very worrying, or at least 
the fear of being made yeah. of having been made redundant and what would have come next was a, a big worry. We catastrophize, don't we? Yeah. I've been made redundant. It's a financial hit. Yeah, I'm going to be out in the streets, homeless. What will my children eat? It goes yeah. straight from you know a, 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 a significant reason to be concerned yes. to a catastrophe. I'm yes. not going to be able to manage this. I'm going to be destitute. Yeah, that's and the danger. I know that one of my coping strategies at the time yeah. was to trudge up and down the village high street with my dog walking because I had nothing else to do. Um, thinking, okay, if this worry that I'm, I'm running around in my head, this this awful fear actually happens, what would I do about it? Well, what could I do about? It? Oh, I could sell my house, the profit in the house. I, I could I could live on the profit in the house. I could find somewhere else cheaper and smaller to live. That wouldn't be a, such a disaster. I went through all of the options yeah. of trying to face the worst case scenario and saying, well, what would I do about it? And actually, it really did calm me down. It didn't stop me worrying. The only thing that really stopped me worrying was when I'd secured a new job. <laughs> but it did calm me down so that I wasn't in total panic over mode. And, and the husband at the time was terrible about these things. So he was no support whatsoever. So, you know, I really had to come up with my own yeah. coping strategies. And that, that was one of them. You know, what is the worst case? Yeah. And actually, do you die? <laughs> if you face the worst case and you can face that and recognise that there are things that you can do, mm. then that helps enormously. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the techniques that I've used myself and with clients is the mountain molehill test. Yeah, that's a good one. So when something happens, is this a mountain or a molehill? Oh. And often it feels like a mountain. And then ask yourself the question, in 24 hours' time, will it still be a mountain? Oh. Or will it have been downgraded? What about a week's time? or a year, or five years. And at the end of the life, your lifetime, is this something that I will remember as being significant, or will other things have replaced it? Mm. And I would say, you know, in all but the very most rare of cases, what we're worrying about can immediately be downgraded into a molehill. Yeah. And if you're going to downgrade it in a day, a month, a year, five years well why not do it now do a bit of time traveling absolutely <laughs> and give yourself that opportunity another great strategy is to write your worries down do a yes. brain dump yes and then take a highlighter pen and with your highlighter pen identify in one color what is absolute fact yes. i know this it's irrefutable yes and then with another highlighter pen what is my supposition? What is my worry generating? And then, having done that, mm. to ask yourself the question, on a practical level, what can I do about this? Mm. And if there are things that you can do, then by going through this process, it can help you get out of the paralysis that's created by worry. Because I think that's one of the real challenges when we're really frightened, you know, the old flight and fright yes. thing, a lot of people just get stuck like a rabbit in the headlights yes. and feel they can't do anything. Mm. So if you can uh, identify steps to do, mm. who do you know that has been through this or has some expertise that you can ask? Or if none of those are available to you, then you can always come onto the website, genuinely-you, and ask us and we'll do our best um, to help you put it into perspective and give you some st simple steps uh, to move things forward. 
But ultimately, if you can't change the problem, mm -hmm. what you can do is change the way in which you respond to it. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, by taking control of the situation in that way, it moves from being something which is an Im immovable mountain mm. into something which is much more manageable. Yeah. But it's interesting to me that, you know, our worry, all based on our beliefs, you know, our worry about, am I good enough? Will people, um, will people recognize that I'm struggling? Will I look silly? Will I be able to manage this? Am I too old, too, mm. too tall, too thin, too, too time poor, too uh, financially poor. And those beliefs feed our worry. Yes. And it becomes this perpetual emotion around, I believe this, I'm going to worry. The worry feeds into the belief. The belief feeds into the worry. And we go round and round in circles. Hence the metaphor of, of a broken gramophone records. Yeah, and uh, some commentators refer to it as creating your own prison. Yeah. And because you really you really do effectively limit your life yeah. and, and hold yourself back from doing things yes. by having this this worry, this anxiety that then becomes a sort of a belief that I yeah. can't yeah. fill in the gap. Um, yeah, so, you know, and, and, and why would you put yourself in a prison? What I find interesting is that it's, like putting, you know, when they free animals who've been in captivity mm. and they put the cage there and they open the door, mm. the animal still believes it's in prison and yet the door is open. And I think it's true for us that we may be sitting within that prison mm. of worrying, but the door is open if you choose yes. to go through it. Yes. And I'm not for a moment saying that this is easy particularly if you are someone who habitually worries. Yeah. 95% of our thinking is habitual. Yeah. So if worrying about stuff is your habitual default place, then that's where you'll go. Yes. But because that's been so in the past, doesn't mean that has to be true of the present and the future. No, and I think that synthesizing of knowledge, of learning yeah. that comes from one example. My daughter was particularly worried about um, going up a lesson for her riding activity yeah. and she had constructed a massive overnight a massive catastrophization yeah. of what would happen and in reality the the larger ride was fun and she did really well and she came out of it and I said right so all of that worry yeah. all of that energy yeah did it did it help in any way no so whenever she gets into worry mode I say yeah. 11 o'clock ride yeah. The 11 o'clock ride all over again because I wanted to synthesize the learning from, oh, okay, so when I went horse riding, it wasn't so scary. So now that I am approaching my GCSE exams and I'm feeling yeah. a similar sense of anticipation and worry, maybe I should recognize again that little steps taken slowly yeah. just face the challenge. And so that, that experience acts as an anchor, doesn't it? You know, an anchor to a time when you have a acted in a very resourceful way yes and i think you know worry strips us of of being able to access our resources yes um interestingly when people in my experience with clients and with family and friends and uh, staff and work colleagues uh -huh. when something really serious happens uh, yeah what's interesting to me is generally speaking people go into 
I'm going to cope with this, I'm going to get on, yep. and they take action. It's so often with the small things in life that the worries become disproportionate. Yep. And I'll give you an example. Um, I have a friend who um, all their life has suffered from anxiety and depression. Mm. Um, you know, if I make a cup of tea, will it be the right strength? That level, but, but magnified. Okay. Diagnosed with cancer, and it was a, a serious cancer between the lining of the heart um, and okay. the, the water in the pericardium. Right. I'm told that they had a 30% um, chance of survival. Okay. The change in that person, and I can honestly say for the first time, they started to live. <laughs> they started to recognise that each day is precious and spending it worrying about the little stuff is such a waste. I love that poem, and I can't remember who it is by no. when Don't death, death whispers in your ear, live, for I am coming. <laughs> it's so true. How come it takes people to face their own death before they live? But it was a perfect <laughs> example of somebody, yeah. and, you know, well into this, in fact, I think 70, um, you know, seven decades, I don't know when they started worrying, but I've known them <laughs> yeah. for 35 years, and they have worried all their lives. Oh. Um, gets what could be a, a life sentence and then suddenly oh I'm not worried about that I'm going to get better I'm going to focus on that and thankfully Amazing. three years later they're still alive still. and they haven't gone back oh, to the old pattern which is really really fantastic yeah yeah good so we're going to draw this conversation to a close and mm. what I would say to everybody here is I'm not making light of worries. I know that everybody has worries in their lives. And they're there at some level to protect us and to help us take action. But if your worries are actually getting to be um, overbearing, if they're taking over, then it is time to take action. There's lots of resources on the Genuinely Used site. The links um, are in the, the show notes. Um, but please do take action. Your life is just so precious and it makes sense to make the most of every day. And don't wait until you get a, a terrible situation or diagnosis to learn to live life to the full, to open <laughs> your prison and to, to move there. Now, Rachel is a number one international best-selling author in the same way I am. Um, she writes uh, novels with a spiritual bent. I have to say, they're brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> the point of him and the truth of her, both available on my website or on Amazon and all book, book bookshops, and you'll find all of my books. And if you're interested in looking at more about how you can develop strategies to live a life full of happiness, of, of success and fulfillment, then Thriving Not Surviving, The Five Secret Pathways to Happiness, Success and Fulfillment are again available on the website, notes below, or on Amazon. I look forward to seeing you in the next show. Take care now.